Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's a portion in the Eucharistic prayer where in our altar book, there's a blank spot. And the blank spot is there for us to add the names of saints and figures from scripture who we might want to remember on a given Sunday. If you've been coming here for any length of time, when you hear Father Jim say the Mass, one of the, well, he always has two saints in there, St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Ignatius of Loyola. As I was doing the readings for the wrong Sunday this week, uh, one of the people who came to my mind was St. Ignatius of Loyola, one of the saints that Father Jim talks a lot about. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola was a Catholic priest who lived from 1491 to 1556 at a time in the Catholic Church we call the Counter-Reformation. He heavily emphasized spirituality and disciplines. However, uh, he was not always a Christian, or at least not someone who lived out his faith seriously. In fact, he started out his life as a military man who was a bloodthirsty, a womanizer, and narcissistic. Perhaps one of the stories that demonstrates the kind of guy he was was that one day as he was on his journeys, he encountered a Moor uh, who denied Christ's divinity. What would you do in that situation? You're walking around and you meet someone who says that Jesus isn't really God. Probably our inclination would be to talk to them about what it is they believe, perhaps share the gospel with them. Not Ignatius of Loyola. In fact, what Ignatius did was challenge the man to a duel to the death and then ran him through with his sword. So, you know. He was only a soldier for a short time, though, because he ended up getting hit in the leg with a cannonball, fracturing that leg. Could have been worse. Could have lost the whole leg altogether. But it ended up that he had to have a number of surgeries, which, of course, in the 15th and 16th centuries, these would not have been fun activities to do. And one of his legs ended up shorter than the other, basically ending his military career. Maybe you've been in similar situations before as St. Ignatius of Loyola was in at that time. Something you really wanted and felt like maybe you were made to do was taken away from you. Think about athletes who get brutally hurt and can never play the sport that they've invested their whole lives in. Like the one that came to mind was the infamous Joe Theismann hit by Lawrence Taylor that ended his career. If you haven't seen that video, you should look it up, but trigger warning, it is gruesome. You can hear the leg snap. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. Um, so while in the hospital, Ignatius must have been going through a crisis like this. He was a military man. He felt like that's where he belonged, and that was being taken away from him. Fortunately for him, the hospital was run by a religious order, and the only, the only reading material was religiously oriented. He had really enjoyed epics and romances and stories about soldiers, but now he's having to read all these books in Latin about theology. As he was in the hospital, he began having dreams. Sometimes the dreams would be about imitating the saints who lived holy lives. Other times, he would dream about serving in the military and falling in love. He realized, after a time, that when he had dreams about the saints, he felt a sense of peace and joy. But after he had his military dreams, he felt dissatisfaction and discontentment. Eventually, 
He became what we might think of as converted and ended up becoming a spiritual giant who has greatly influenced how we think about discernment and spiritual disciplines and was instrumental in the founding of what we now call the Jesuit order. But the main thing I want to focus on from Ignatius, and it corresponds to this morning's readings, or well, what could have been this morning's readings, as the idea of consolation and desolation. Consolation was the term that Ignatius used to describe the felt presence of God in our souls. Desolation was the absence of that felt presence of God in our souls. And these things come in cycles. We inevitably experience things as we go through the courses of our lives where at times we feel like we're on the top of a mountaintop and at other times we feel like we're at the bottom of a deep valley. I'm sure if you reflect for a while, you can put your thumb on times in your life where you have experienced consolation or where you've experienced desolation. They are inevitable cycles of our life. The author of the psalm that we prayed this morning, Psalm 42, seems to be familiar with these highs and lows. Most likely, he's writing from exile away from the temple of God in Jerusalem. To a Hebrew, being taken away from that temple and having that temple destroyed would have been the culmination of desolation. God was present in his temple amongst his people. Removing the people from the land and destroying that temple raised some serious problems for them, which is why the author desperately asks in verse 2, when shall I come and behold the face of God? Not only that, but we see the author is being cajoled by adversaries who constantly taunt him asking, where's your God? because he's not in your temple. This is painful for the author, especially when juxtaposed his memory of better days in verse four. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and with songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. We can probably at different points in our life identify with the psalmist in aspects of the trials that he experienced. We felt removed from God. The actions of others and our life circumstances can make it harder for us to feel as though God is with us. So what are we to do in those moments? Are we to give up? Are we to allow desolation to control us? Fortunately, the the psalmist provides us a model. According to Nancy Walford, a biblical scholar, she says the ancient Israelites had waited many times in their history for God to appear and deliver them. In Egypt, they waited for the deliverance from slavery. In the wilderness, they waited to go to the promised land. In the exile in Babylon, they waited to return to Jerusalem and to the presence of God. The psalmist has hope because he remembers God's actions in the past, and that remembrance enables him to trust in God moving forward. All your waves and your billows have gone over me, he says, using water imagery, which will be significant in both the Old Testament and the gospel lesson. So how does this help us? As Nancy Walford continues, when we find ourselves in circumstances where God seems to be absent, when our very beings feel as though the weight of the world is upon them, may we be able to speak the assuring words, wait for God, for I will again praise him. Both our Kings and our Mark reading features people who had leprosy. 
Leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, is a bacterial infection which produce, produces granulomas, which are in, inflammation made up of a collection of immune cells uh, known as histiocytes. These granulomas often, lack in, often result in the lack of ability to feel pain and may lead to loss of the outer extremities. In our Old Testament reading, Naaman is a Syrian military commander who suffered from leprosy and he's healed after Elisha instructs him to wash in the River Jordan. And in our gospel lesson, Jesus heals an unnamed man with leprosy. There are similarities between these two stories. Both characters are healed by the power of God. Both are cleansed, Naaman in the River Jordan and the leper undergoes the ritual cleansing for people healed with leprosy according to Leviticus 14. However, there is one really interesting difference between the two stories. In Kings, Elisha is not the agent of the healing. He's the messenger, insofar as he tells Naaman the right place to go, but he doesn't do anything beyond that. On the other hand, in Mark, Jesus gets up close and personal with the man. Remember, this leper, according to their social customs, was unclean. Maybe he was missing fingers or toes. His face may have been deformed. He's the kind of guy a lot of us would most likely pass on the street without speaking or even attempting to look at. Yet Jesus isn't scared. Jesus isn't disgusted. Instead, he's moved with pity. He stretches out his hand. He actually touches him, which would have been a huge no-no in that culture. And the man is healed. Stories like this are historical. This really happened. There was really a man with leprosy who really went to Jesus and really, Jesus really reached out and touched him and the man was really healed. Yet the amazing thing about these narratives is that this story is the story of us too. Maybe we're more socially acceptable in our current state than the leper was. But prior to God's work in our lives, we were disfigured by sin in a way that leprosy never could disfigure us. In sin, we're ugly and we're deformed only shadows of what humanity was in our unfallen state. Yet as Christ went to the leper and treated him with dignity and respect, he came to stand in solidarity with us by taking on our flesh. He was not removed from us but he became like us so that we could become like him. Christ regenerates the flesh of the leper in this passage, but through his work on the cross, he creates us anew in baptism so that we are part of a new humanity. So maybe like the psalmist, you're going through a cycle of desolation. Maybe you're experiencing consolation. The beauty of the work of Christ in baptism is that it's objective and it's independent of how you might feel. Much like the man with leprosy didn't have to keep checking himself because he knew he had been miraculously healed, we don't have to be in a constant state of anxiety just because we don't feel God in a given moment. Just because we don't feel him doesn't mean he's not there. Always remember your baptism. It's a sign that God has decisively moved in your life. Because of what, God, of what Christ does, and the way we receive that work in baptism, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as guilty or ugly anymore. He sees Christ within us. 
but it doesn't stop there. He's created us anew, and he's faithful to preserve that work in us and allow it to continue growing until we become what it is that he said that we are. And it's in this aspect of the Christian story that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. When it comes to us realizing our baptism in our life, we have to train and work. Paul tells the Corinthians, run in such a way that you may win the prize. Ultimately, it becomes a question about what our motivation is for running that race in the first place. If we do it because we feel like it, then periods of desolation will feel all the more desolate and maybe even detrimental to our spiritual walk because the only catalyst that we've had is how we feel. But think about all the great athletes. Are they great athletes because they just happen to feel like training when they do? Probably not. I would imagine that there are days when some of the greatest of all times, like Tom Brady or LeBron James, wake up in the morning before it's bright outside and they don't feel like getting out of bed. They'd rather sleep. Maybe there are times when they sit down to eat and they'd rather have that McDonald's cheeseburger. However, for them to become the greatest of their craft, what they had to do was master themselves and their impulses, which is why I'm not a great athlete. <laughs> Similarly, if our motivation for living the Christian life is our feeling on a given day, we aren't going to make much enduring progress. It might start out easy, but it gets hard. So we must look elsewhere for our motivation, and the best place to look is our baptism. Remembering the work of Christ. It gives us an end goal, because in that baptism, we die to Christ. And that dying enables us to receive an imperishable reward, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And this is apt for us to hear today, because Wednesday marks a new season in the church calendar. Well, yes, Wednesday is Valentine's Day. It's also Ash Wednesday. So, guys, if you forgot to plan something, you have a good excuse uh, this week, this year. But don't let it be a habit, because next year it won't be the same. In Lent, this theme is discipline and self-mastery. It's about identifying with Christ. And in order to help us do this, many people choose to follow the Christian calendar where they fast on Fridays. Some go above and beyond and they'll actually give something up. So sometimes people will give up sugar or sweets or Facebook or using the internet or whatever it is uh, to help them master themselves and develop self-control. So it may be helpful for you to reflect for today and the rest of this week before Wednesday how you might run the race this Lent season with your baptism in mind. But no matter what you feel as the Holy Spirit leading you to do, always remember your baptism as you do it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for being a healer and for healing people with leprosy in the past, but we also pray for being the healer of our souls we pray that as we move forward through Lent, that you might reveal those places where we are still sick, where our souls are still deformed in states of chaos. You may help us through your Holy Spirit identify those places and to discipline ourselves so that we may conquer them and live in you. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>